So if I had to say to you, what does a, a Jew look like, uh, or a Muslim, uh, or a Buddhist? Just uh, form a picture in your own mind, in, in your imagination, and what are you seeing? Um, I'm sure you've seen quite a similar picture to me, a, a Jew, you know, has uh, got sort of a long beard, long sideburns, uh, a small black or white cap on his head. Um, a Muslim, also this long sort of robe with a square hat on top, um, performing this kind of prayer ritual. If it's a, a lady that you imagined, well, one of those long robes with her you know, whole body uh, covered and her uh, head covered. A Buddhist, uh, picturing maybe someone who's bald, uh, wearing an orange robe. Um, a Buddhist monk probably sitting in some kind of lotus position. Maybe your pictures aren't exactly the same as mine, but I'm quite sure they're pretty similar. Um, now, if I said to you, uh, picture a Christian, what is the picture that comes to your mind? And if I say, you know, picture a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Jew, each of these religions have a distinct dress, they've got an, a, a distinct appearance, they've got rituals that distinguish them, they've got a meeting place, and often those meeting places look the same. Um, so when, you, when I say, you know, think of a Jew, you obviously think of Hebrews or Jews and Muslims, uh, you might think of Arabs, um, Hindus, or Buddhists, you might think of um, Indians or Malaysians. They're often associated with a particular culture even. Um, but when I say picture a Christian, form in your mind's eye uh, the picture of what a Christian looks like. Um, well, that's difficult, isn't it? Uh, because Christians aren't characterized by a particular dress code. Maybe you, maybe you pictured a, a Catholic priest possibly, or, or maybe you, you pictured a sort of an American televangelist, clean-shaven, uh, with the Bible under his arm like a Jehovah's Witness style. Maybe you pictured something like that. But the chance of all our pictures of a Christian being the same is very slim because Christianity, Christians, are not defined by a particular dress code or a particular set of rituals. Uh, we're not defined by uh, going to a certain place. We're not even defined by a particular culture or people group. Maybe some people like to think of Christianity as associated primarily with Western culture, but that's a misnomer. Um, some of the great Christian fathers, um, uh, Augustine, Tertullian, Cyprian, these were Africans. Christianity took root in Africa long before it took uh, root in Britain and the rest of Europe. Even today, there are more Christians of non-Western culture. So Christianity is not all about those externals. It's not even about one uh, cultural set of cultural practices. The name says it all, right? Christian, little Christs. So Christianity is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about being like Christ, being devoted to Christ. doesn't matter uh, what you look like, how you dress, what your economic status or culture or background or race or creed. Believers in every place, over every age, have worshipped Jesus Christ. We've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We've focused on Christ. We've served Christ. And we've gazed on Christ. And, and more and more we've, uh, we are made into his image as uh, we gaze on him and trust in him. But the question is, what does Christ look like? 
I mean, we don't know very much about Christ's appearance or his dress or any ritual practices he practices. So to look like Christ is not about those external things. It's to have Christ-like character. To be Christ-like is not even a matter of copying his personality. It's about being like Christ in the inner man, taking on Christ's character, his values, his perspectives, what was important to him. That's what it means to be Christ-like. But the question is, how can you uh, become Christ-like in your inner being, in your, your inner character? How is it possible to be transformed in who you are into the image of Christ? Because we can all understand how we can adopt certain rituals and practices and dress codes. We can all do certain things that are Christ-like. But how do you be Christ-like in who you are, in the inside, in what you value, and in your perspectives, and your worldview, and your desires? How do those be conformed to the image of Christ? And that's exactly what we'll be looking at this morning. That is what the ministry of the Spirit is all about. God gave His Spirit, Christ's Spirit, Christ's own inner core character in us to reproduce himself in us. So we've been working through the letter to the Romans. We're up to Romans chapter 8. It's a, it's a chapter all about the ministry of the Spirit, about this inner transformation um, that takes place, that makes us like Jesus Christ. Romans 8 verses 1 to 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So this morning we're going to look at three key terms in this passage um, that, that summarize what it teaches uh, about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Freedom, fulfillment, and faith. Those are the key terms that we're going to look at. So the first one is freedom. Freedom from condemnation and the control of sin in verses 1 to 3. Freedom. So if we read there, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. And in these verses, he's really summarizing what he's been teaching us in Romans 5 to 7. And the ministry of the Spirit has to be seen in the context of the argument Paul's been making all the way from Romans chapter 5. So go back to Romans chapter 5. After Paul presents the bad news of sin in 1 and 2, the good news of justification by faith in 3 and 4, in 5 he then begins to draw out uh, the implications of this. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So there's no condemnation. We've been justified. We have peace with God uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've obtained access by faith into this grace we stand. You see, he's basically summarizing um, our standing before God, this hope that we have, this sure glory with God that we will enjoy. That's Romans 8.1. Verses 2 and 3 of Romans chapter 8 says, The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now this term law can be used in different ways. It can be used to refer to a specific law or set of commandments, um, such as the Mosaic law or the Ten Commandments. It can also be referred to a governing principle or a way of life. Um, And that's how he's using it here. A principle or a way of life. In verse 2 it says the Spirit is the new governing principle or way of life. And it set us free from the way of life governed by and characterized by sin and death. That's what he's saying. Again, he's summarizing what he's been teaching up until this point. And so just to jog your memory, in Romans 6, 6 and 7... We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So this old way of life uh, that was characterized by sin and death, Christ has set us free from that. We've been united with Christ in his death in order to be free from sin and death. Free from sin's power and influence over our lives free from its control. So the work of Christ not only frees us from condemnation, uh, but uh, the condemnation of sin, but also the control of sin. It not only frees us from the penalty of sin, but it also frees us from sin's power. And then in Romans chapter 7, verses 4 to 6, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So not only are we free from the controlling influence and power of sin, but we're free from the controlling influence and power of the law. The law didn't help us stop sinning. In fact, just the opposite. That's uh, what happened. Uh, Sin used the law and incited us to sin more, and it didn't give us any ability to, to stop sinning, to resist this temptation. It provided a standard of what is right, but gave us no help 
in attaining to that standard. That's how Paul ended his whole discussion on the law in Romans chapter 7, uh, just before Romans 8, obviously. In Romans seven twenty-one to 25, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And again, he's using that term law referring to a principle, a governing principle. This is what I find to be true, the governing principle of my life. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members another law, another principle, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, this principle of sin that is within me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Only Jesus can deliver me from this wretched position of, of being under the condemnation of the law, knowing what the standard is, but having no ability to reach it. That's what he's explaining in Romans 8.33. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his Son. Who will rescue me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Don't miss the significance here of verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. The law condemns man. Grace condemns sin. Look there what it says. He condemns sin in the flesh. The law renders man guilty, Grace renders man justified. The law sets the standard. Grace meets that standard. God has done in Jesus Christ what the law couldn't do. He sent his son to condemn sin and justify sinners. And the Spirit has ushered us into a new way of living now, a new principle of life which has set us free from this old principle of life governed by sin and law working together to produce death. That's freedom. That's ours. Free from sin, free from the law, free from death, free for life. That's Romans 6 and 7. That's what we put off. We put off sin we put off the controlling influence of the law and we put on Jesus Christ. That's Romans 8. Romans 8 is describing the new. This is what God saved us from. Romans 8, now this is what God saved us for. So the next word I want you to consider um, in this text here is the term fulfillment. Fulfillment in verses 4 to 8. And the, the terms are closely connected because we freed from one thing, freed for another. This is what we freed for. This is the fulfillment now of what Jesus Christ has done. Then verse 4, he says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So verse 4 is not a new sentence, but the completion of verse 3. Notice the purpose clause there, in order that. This is the purpose. Why did God send his son and condemn sin in the flesh? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. There's that word. God didn't send Christ to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. God didn't 
send Christ to do away with the standards of the law, but to enable us to walk according to it. God didn't lower the standards of righteousness or say his righteousness is irrelevant. He provided in Jesus Christ a way that we could fulfill his righteousness. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin. He paid the penalty that the law required. He satisfied all the penalty, the wrath that was directed towards our unrighteousness. And not only that, but he fulfilled all God's righteousness. He perfectly fulfilled the law. And so through faith in Jesus Christ, we have a perfect righteous standing before God. The law is completely fulfilled in us. Our legal standing before God is spotless. We have the record of Jesus Christ. It has no blemishes. That's what we have in the gospel. But notice carefully the movement there from our righteous standing to our daily walk. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, verse 1. And then following from that, we've been set free from this law of sin and death. And how does verse 2 begin? For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. So the Spirit, his, this principle, the governing principle of, of His life and His domain is life. And we've been set free from this death in order to have life in the Spirit. The sanctifying ministry of the Spirit is the assurance of the justifying work of Christ. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus because we've been set free from death and sin in order to be led by the Spirit, to have life in the Spirit. And verse 3 follows in the same line. We've been, God sent His Son to, to uh, condemn sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law, the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And you see the movement there. Justification is the basis for sanctification. Sanctification is the proof of justification, and both in this text are the work of God. That's what you've got to realize. This is what this text is telling us. What has God done? He sent His Son. He sent his son so that there would be no condemnation. He sent his son so that there could be freedom from death and sin. He sent his son so that there could be a fulfillment of the law. He sent his son that we could be perfect righteousness in those who walk in this new life that the Spirit's provided, in this new righteousness that God has provided in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 4, it says, In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. In the Greek text, that's an aorist, passive, subjunctive. If you've never studied Greek, that doesn't mean anything to you. But let me break it down for you. It's something that hasn't yet been accomplished. That's the subjunctive. It, it awaits future fulfillment. And it's passive, which means it's not something I do, but something that's done to me. I'm passive in it. I receive it. So this, this righteousness is going to be fulfilled in us, that it might be fulfilled. This is something that's not already fulfilled, but it will be fully fulfilled. And it's not going to be fulfilled by me acting and doing, but by, by someone or something acting on me. And that fits in, of course, with what it's saying there 
those who walk not according to the flesh. It's, it's talking about, uh, it's a shift here from our position, which is an accomplished fact, it's finished, to our walk, which is still being accomplished. The same Greek form is used in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, which talks about God sending trials to refine and conform us um, and, and confirm our faith. And then it says this, so that the tested genuineness or the proven genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, trials is continually operating on our faith, refining and strengthening them so that when Jesus Christ comes, this faith might be shown to be genuine and and this conforming, refining work will be finished and he will get the glory. That's the idea. So to draw out the significance of this this Greek form there in verse 4, really what it's saying is this. In the end, the righteous requirements of the law will be fulfilled in us by the action of another on us. And in this context, the action of another on us is the work of the Spirit on us and in us, who leads us to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And you can see here how seamlessly Paul moves from justification, there's no condemnation, freedom from sin and death, to sanctification, our daily walk, our practicing of righteousness. The gospel transforms both. God is doing both. We've been freed from the governing principle of sin and death in order to live according to a new law, a new principle, one characterized by the Spirit and life. Put it another way, we no longer live in the flesh and walk according to the flesh, but we live in the Spirit and we walk according to the Spirit. The same truth explained in different ways. So the idea that we can place our faith in Jesus Christ and be justified and then nothing changes in our life practically is completely unbiblical. The Bible's mindset is that the faith that justifies is the same faith that sanctifies. The faith that brings us into a position, a right standing with God where we have no condemnation, that same faith also uh, gives us God's Spirit who transforms us so that we have a different walk. And the God who justifies us by His power and by His grace is the same God who sanctifies us by His power and by His grace. And the Bible puts those two together. You can't have one without the other. The Bible has no idea of justification without sanctification or sanctification without justification. These are the work of God. How do we know that Christ defeated sin on the cross because of his resurrection, which brought him back from the dead and raised him up from the dead and showed his victory over sin and death? But the story doesn't end there, does it? How do we know that Christ's victory on the cross is mine? Christ's payment for sin is sufficient for my sin because Christ brings us back from the dead. Christ frees us from sin and death and Christ leads us in a new resurrection life. And that's how we know Christ is in us, practically and personally. Christ is still alive and he's still doing his ministry 
in the work and the person of the Spirit. Just turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. This is what Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What is he praying? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul just wants these believers to understand that the resurrection power that was at work in Jesus Christ is now at work in you and me. His immeasurably great power toward us who believe. Which leads me to the final word that we want to cover this morning from this text, the word faith. We've looked at freedom from sin and death, fulfillment, the righteousness of the law is being fulfilled in us by the powerful ministry of the Spirit in us who leads us to walk not according to that old life, the flesh, sin and death, but who leads us to walk in a new life characterized by righteousness in fulfillment of the law. Faith. The first term, faith in God's power to transform. This is the last thing I want to consider. And you've seen the word transform, fulfillment there. You've seen the word freedom there. The word faith is not in the text. But it's really coming out of what is in the text and what is not in the text. What is in the text is the Spirit. The term Spirit occurs 21 times in Romans 8. That's once every two verses. So this chapter is about the ministry of the Spirit. What's not in the text are any imperatives. There are no commands. There's no instructions. In other words, this text is not telling us what to do, but what to believe. Did you get that? This text is not telling us what to do, but it's telling us what God does and what we must believe. See, too often we want to move from the gospel to the practical how-tos. Just tell me what to do. Romans 12, we'll get there. And it's going to get very practical and tell you exactly what to do. But we move quickly as if Christ saves us and then I must do all of this on my own, in my own strength. And we don't understand that we got saved by grace through faith. And we live out the Christian life by grace through faith. And the foundation of our salvation, our justification, is the same foundation for our sanctification, for our growth, for all that we do. The faith that God gives us in Jesus Christ, which gives us a standing before Him, is the same faith that He's working in us 
which works his righteousness in us and gives him glory. I said earlier, justification is the basis for sanctification. Sanctification is the proof of justification. Both in this text are the work of God. That's what this text is emphasizing. When it comes to Romans 8, which is talking about the the living out of what God has given us in Jesus Christ, it's a text all about what God is doing. It's emphasizing what God gives us. What God gives us in Jesus Christ that we haven't earned and don't deserve. And what gives us what God gives us in Jesus Christ is a comprehensive gift. God gives us everything we need for life and godliness. He gives us everything we need to stand justified in His sight. He gives us everything we need to enjoy eternity with Him, with him in glory. He gives us everything we need for today. He gives us everything we need for the trials and difficulties and obstacles that we face today. Jesus Christ is an all comprehensive, all-encompassing gift of grace. Do you believe it? That's the question. Do you believe it? Before we try and lift a finger to serve God, we better believe that all that I do is the mere outworking of grace. It's a product of what God has already done for me and in me. And we should never move that from that foundation. Justification is the foundation. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that is the basis for anything I do for God. It's the mere outworking of what He's given me. Let me just walk you through that briefly in, in this chapter. Look at verse 4. The the, the righteous requirement of the law w- might be, will be, will ultimately be fulfilled in us. God will do it in us who, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is a statement of fact, not a command. It's not saying walk according to the Spirit. It's not saying do anything. It's a promise that the righteous requirements of the law will ultimately be fulfilled. God will ensure it. This will happen. It's a certain promise. It's a prophecy, if you want to put it that way. It will take place because God will operate on us. In us who? Who walk according to the Spirit. That's not a command. It's a statement. It's a fact. This is what characterizes a believer. We walk according to the Spirit. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Another fact. As inevitably as those who are in the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those things result in death, So those who set their mind on the things of the Spirit, it results in life and peace. When it talks about a mindset here, those who set their mind on the flesh, it's not talking about uh, your thinking only. It's talking about the whole bent of your life. 
The whole bent and direction of those in the flesh is set on fleshly desires and results in death. But those who, whose whole mindset and bent, the whole direction and bent of their life is set on the Spirit, results in life and peace. That's verse 6. Those whose bent is on the flesh is death. Those whose bent is on the Spirit is life and peace. Peace. Those whose bent, uh, verse 7, the mindset that, that, that is on the flesh, those who are in the flesh, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. See, it's not just talking about a thought here or a way of thinking. It's talking about the whole direction and bent of your life. It's not saying that an unbeliever is unable to ever think about God or, or do any good thing for God. But it's saying the whole bent and direction of their life is, is not directed towards God, but against God, to hostility towards God, and ultimately results in sin and death. And we know that to be true. But the opposite is also true. This is a statement of fact. Just as true, just as, as inevitable it is that this is how an unbeliever's life goes, away from God towards sin and death, so inevitable it is that the life of a believer goes towards life and peace because our whole bent is towards the Spirit and that's where he leads. See, he's contrasting these two directions or ways of living to, to one another. And the life in the Spirit is a whole new mode of being. It's a whole new kind of existence. And it's true of us as believers. Notice verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you and anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. See, this is not a command. Set your mind on the Spirit and don't set your mind on the flesh. It's a fact. You have your whole direction and, uh, and bent in your life towards the Spirit. It is a fact. It's what characterizes you. And that's why he can say, you're not in the flesh. This is not your way of living. This is not defining who you are. You are in the Spirit. This is who you are. And this is the bent of your life. And in fact, anyone who belongs to Christ, this is the bent of their life. They are in the Spirit. They have the Spirit. And they are directed towards the Spirit. You see the contrast there? There's no one in between. You're either in the flesh, and in the flesh you are, you are naturally bent towards rebellion and sin and death, or you're in the Spirit and you're, you're bent towards righteousness and peace and life. And those who are in Christ are in the Spirit and are led by the Spirit. And those who are outside of Christ do not have the Spirit or this bent. There are no commands here that need to be uh, obeyed. There's no decision that needs to be made. This is all just a statement of fact, of reality as God sees it. This is God telling you who you really are, how, uh, how he really sees your life, and what the true bent of your life is. You can't see it. And so God is giving you spiritual insight into how he sees it. Notice verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Those who are sons of God are led by the Spirit, and the Spirit does lead us in righteousness. It's just a statement of what the Spirit is doing, not what we should be doing. He is leading us. Verse 16, 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is not a command to us. This is a statement of what the Spirit is doing. He's bearing witness with us that we are God's children. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. This is not a command. It's a fact. It's a statement. It's a promise. The Spirit is interceding for us according to God's will. And so Paul can therefore conclude this section in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up with us all, how will he not also graciously along with him give us all things? You see Paul's point? This whole chapter, uh, Romans 8, is all about what God is doing for us and in us. And so he can conclude this chapter saying, if God is for us then, who can stand against us? How could we ever be defeated? And that's how he concludes the whole um, section in verse 37, Romans 8, 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? That's the question. Don't ask of this text, what must I do for God? Ask of this text, what is God doing for me? That's what this text is meant to answer. What must I believe that God is doing for me? That is the basis of our justification and our sanctification. Every time we give way to temptation, every time uh, we have had a failure you know, to resist temptation, it's a failure of faith. It's a failure to believe. Before we've had a failure and, uh, to act or a failure to react, we've had a failure of faith. And every successful encounter with sin that leads us victorious is because we believed. We exercised our faith as we ought to. And we trusted in what God has given us in Jesus Christ. And that's why God continues to allow Satan to harass us with every kind of temptation. Because every kind of temptation should be driving us back to Jesus Christ. To what God has given us in Him. And causing us to believe, to trust in, to rest in, to cling to, to depend on that and that alone. One of our church distinctives is that we offer biblical counseling when people are stuck in their Christian growth for whatever reason and they're directionless and they feel overwhelmed and they don't know what to do or what to believe or where to head and they can't solve a particular problem in their life, then we offer to come alongside them and help them. And one of the first things you're trained to do in biblical counseling is you want to use the Bible to help people. But the first thing we're told to do is you have to give them hope. doesn't matter what their problem is. doesn't matter what their underlying cause is or the solutions that you're going to get to as you try to counsel them. The first part of helping a person, the first thing you need to do is to give them hope. That's one common problem to all counseling problems, one common element. In other words, the main reason why Christians get stuck in their Christian growth the main reason why they start stumbling in their Christian growth, the reason behind all other reasons, 
is that they stop believing. They stop having hope. They stop believing that God is at work in them and through God's work in them they will overwhelmingly conquer. They stop believing that simple truth. They stop believing that they can change. And they started to give way to doubt and fear and unbelief. And before we can help them with any of the the original causes as it were, we have to show them their God again and show them His grace and show them His power and call them to believe again, to have hope that God can and does change them. In a nutshell, that is what the ministry of the Spirit is all about. And this chapter opens really with calling us to believe. Gordon Fee has written a book on the ministry of the Holy Spirit and it's entitled The Empowering Presence of God. And I love that title. It summarizes the Spirit's ministry, the empowering presence of God in us, with us, for us. Do you believe it? Do you believe it in your daily life? Are you taking it out, this hope, this confidence that God gives you of His Spirit in you to fight against your sin, to fight against your depression, to fight against your guilt and your shame, your fear, your anxiety, to fight those desires that make you want to go back to your old life and just chuck it all up and say, I can't do this, I'm just going to go back to the life I used to live. Are you taking out this hope, this confidence that God gives you of the ministry of the Spirit in you, God for you, and using it to fight. So how do we recognize a Christian? Christ is in you. Christ is in you. That's what it says there. Notice there in verse nine, in verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. This is how Paul summarizes what the ministry of the Spirit is, the presence of the Spirit is. It's Christ in you. How does Christ's character come out of you? How does Christ's character be formed in you? Well, by this. Christ is in you by His Spirit. Christ is in you. And therefore, can anything but Christ become out of you ultimately? Christ is in you. And so He is forming Himself in you. And his character will come out of you. Freedom, fulfillment, faith. Christ in you. Do you believe it? Do you believe it?